This week's episode is brought to you by Studio Sweden. Studio is out to revolutionize the way in which people use headphones by removing the choice between a pair that looks good and a pair that works well. They produce stylish headphones with great sound quality at a fraction of the cost of their competitors, while maintaining a sleek and stylish look. I use a pair of their Trey headphones for my bus commute and I love them. Whether it's catching up on my own podcasts on the way to work, or using them at the gym to burn off a little steam after classes, they are fantastic, and they come with this nifty little leather bag to protect them. Studio is offering listeners of the show 15% off on their order with the coupon code HISTORYOFJAPAN, that's one word, HISTORYOFJAPAN, so head on over to studiosweden.com, that's S-U-D-I-O-S-W-E-D-E-N.com, and check them out today. Hello and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 216, The Scourge of the Gods, part 7. The last episode of this series is going to be devoted to answering the age-old question of all historians. So what? Who gives a damn? Why is a failure worth seven episodes of our time? To answer this question, I'm going to focus on three areas in particular. First, the legacy of Kublai Khan for China and the Greater Mongol Empire. Second, the legacy of Hojo Tokimune for Japan. And third, the overall impact of the invasions on Japan's future. So let's start with the Great Khan, who passed on in early 1294. What did Kublai leave in his wake? Well, the obvious answer is a whole lot of war. At the time Kublai died, the Yen Dynasty was not only still technically engaged in a war with Japan, it was also more or less at war with Burma and both Vietnamese kingdoms, Dai Viet and Champa. Fortunately, Kublai had nominated a talented successor to take his place. Temur, his grandson by way of his tragically passed son and original heir, Prince Junjin. Temur, at age 29, was well prepared to take the throne and proved to be a wise and talented leader, particularly with the help of his mother, the wise and talented Princess Kokijin. Temur Khan was not a political innovator. His policies can be summed up in relatively simple terms. Abroad, he tried to broker peace to end the wars that had drained the dynasty's manpowers and funds to such a substantial degree. Because remember that even before the actual founding of the Yuan Dynasty, Kublai Khan and his predecessors had been fighting a half-century-long war against the previous Song Dynasty. The Mongols had won, but the expense of that victory and the cost of their other adventures abroad had left the dynasty in bad financial straits. Peace was necessary to restore financial balance. At home, Temur continued the pro-Confucian reforms of his father, he continued to promote non-Mongols to positions of power and influence in his government. The only case in which Temur refused to make peace 
was the war against Kaidu. Obviously, challenges to his father's authority were challenges to his own authority, and those Confucian platitudes about moral authority over violence nonwithstanding, those could not be tolerated. In the end, Temur was unable to crush Kaidu militarily. Instead, his father's rival would die of natural causes in 1301, still fighting his fight against those who would make the Mongols, well, less Mongolian. Yet time, as it turned out, was on Temur's side. After Kaidu's death, his cause began to peter out for a simple reason. The Mongols, in general, were becoming increasingly assimilated. The Ilkhans of Persia were converting to Islam and taking on the culture of Imperial Persia. The Khans of the Altan Ordu, or the Golden Horde of the Russian Steppes, were taking on the culture of their subject Crimean peoples. Simply put, the empire was growing apart. The time of unified Mongol identity was beginning to pass. And so Kaidu's cause sputtered away alongside its final champion. In the other foreign conflicts of the Yuan dynasty, Temur proved himself a skilled diplomat. He never came out and admitted weakness to those who had fought his father. He never came begging to the peace table. Instead, he let it be known that those who submitted themselves to nominal Mongol overlordship would be forgiven. All you would have to do is acknowledge the Chinese emperor, which is to say the Mongol emperor, as your nominal overlord. Basically, the Bagan kings of Burma and the Vietnamese kings of Dai Viet and Champa were offered a chance to return to the old Chinese tribute system. They would nominally submit themselves to Mongol rule, but enjoy substantial autonomy in day-to-day -day affairs. This was a highly agreeable deal, and all of them took it. By acknowledging Mongol overlordship, even if it was nominal overlordship, free of any actual teeth, the kings let Temur Khan claim a win for his good old dad, but the fact that they retained their autonomy meant that they weren't really giving up much themselves. It was a skillful bit of diplomacy. Everybody won, or at least got to look like they won. When it came to the Japanese, Temur was a bit more circumspect. He knew that historically the Japanese had never been willing to accept even nominal Chinese overlordship. Even if it was all empty words, the Japanese were too proud of their own imperial glories to submit to a foreign emperor. So Temur went with the next best thing. He simply pretended the Japanese weren't there. He turned a blind eye to them diplomatically, assuming that, left to their own business, the Japanese would not bother him. Temur Khan made the best play with a deceptively bad hand. The common consensus is that he's one of the better Yuan Dynasty emperors, and I see no reason to quibble with that assessment. His successors, on the other hand, are not so well reviewed. You see, only 74 years after Kublai Khan's death in 1294, his successors would be chased clean out of China by the native Han Chinese, in a series of bloody uprisings leading to the establishment of the new dynasty, the Ming. In some ways, this was a natural outgrowth of the wars Kublai fought to establish the dynasty. Those wars were expensive in terms of money and draining in terms of manpower, and in many ways the Yuan dynasty never truly recovered. In addition, Kublai exacerbated the problem by embracing a new innovation designed to help him deal with his economic problems, paper money. Kublai figured that paper currency would let him fund his wars by printing as much of it as he needed. This, of course, meant printing more and more money, 
which caused inflation, reducing the value of the cash even as more of it was in circulation. The economic problems created by this early experience with hyperinflation would plague the dynasty for its entire existence. Paper money vanished from China after the Yuan Dynasty as Kublai's failed experiment seemed to prove the idea that it could not work. In addition, neither Kublai, nor Temer, nor any of their successors were able to solve the most basic problem of the Mongols, one that every single conqueror throughout history has always faced. Conquerors are, simply put, never popular. They must always face the fact that they are a people apart, their rule imposed by force. The only way to get around that is to really adopt the culture of the conquered, but doing so means losing your own culture, and in the case of the Mongols, the skills created by their culture that had enabled them to create their empire in the first place. This is a very difficult circle to square, and different groups have handled it differently throughout the long course of human history. Kublai himself had a hard time figuring out how to even approach the issue. He seems to have been sympathetic to the idea that the Mongols should assimilate partially, but also wanted to maintain a unique sense of Mongol identity. That half-measure proved unable to assuage criticisms that the Mongols were not really, and indeed could never be, fully Chinese. Their identity as different, violent invaders, combined with the dynasty's difficult financial straits, served to make the Yen among China's shorter-lived major dynasties. By 1368, the Mongols had abandoned China proper. Though the Yuan dynasty endured in Mongolia, and the Khans of the Mongols continued to refer to themselves as emperors of China until the 1500s, for all intents and purposes, Kublai's dynasty lived only a few generations beyond Kublai himself. So how did the attempt to invade Japan contribute to all of this? Well, the most obvious answer is simply that it was one more money pit for the Mongols. The invasions were expensive in terms of manpower and cash, particularly considering that both ended in defeat, or in the first case, at best, strategic stalemate. Particularly on top of all the other wars it was fighting, the Japan invasion was just one more big cost for the UN, and one that the dynasty could not sustain. Beyond the pure financial aspect, there's one other major impact that I want us to consider. Simply put, the Mongols lost. And especially the second time around, they lost bad. And that just didn't happen very often. The Japanese victory over the Mongols shattered one of the most important parts of the Mongol legacy, their image of invincibility. Now sure, the Mongols had lost individual battles before. In some cases, like their wars against the Mamluks, they'd lost entire campaigns. But specifically in East Asia, where all the subject peoples of the UN could hear about it, well, that magnitude of defeat had not happened before. And especially, a defeat so bad that in whatever spin they put on it, the Mongols did in the end acknowledge having lost. Simply choosing to pretend the whole thing hadn't happened was an acknowledgement on the part of the emperors of the UN dynasty that they had failed to impose their will upon Japan. And that failure caused Koreans, Chinese, Vietnamese, and others under Mongol rule to ask a simple question. They could do it. Why not us? On the Japanese side, the legacy of victory is more complex. Yes, the Hojo Shiken had won. 
At the tender age of 27, Hojo Tokimune had beaten two Mongolian invasions on his territory. Yet Tokimune did not know for a fact that the war was over. Remember that the Mongols never sent emissaries offering peace, they just tried to pretend both invasions hadn't happened. That meant that Tokimune remained on a war footing for the rest of his life, anticipating a third invasion that would never come. The rest of his life, though, didn't prove to be that long. At the age of 34, in 1284, Tokimune would take ill very rapidly and die. The causes were entirely natural, and frankly, given the high-stress nature of the last decade or so for him, not entirely unexpected. However, his death left the country without a skilled leader, should another invasion come. His son and heir, Sadatoki, was only 14. And by the by, this fear of a third invasion was not entirely unfounded. I didn't mention this last time, but there actually was a plan in place in 1283 to launch a third invasion of Japan. Kublai got so far as to order the Koreans to start building a new fleet. The Japanese, by way of sympathetic Buddhist monks on the continent, got word of the plan, and of a rumor that the new fleet would not target Hakata, but instead bypass Kyushu altogether and land in Harima, a coastal province of Honshu, right next to the imperial capital of Kyoto. These rumors were credible enough that the warriors of Kyushu were mobilized in case the Harima rumor turned out to be false, and defenses were built in Harima in case it turned out to be true. It turned out that the Mongol war in Vietnam pulled the dynasty's attention away from an invasion of Japan, but nobody bothered to tell the Japanese. Well until November 1283, the country remained on an imminent war footing, expecting Mongol sails on the horizon any day now. Even when an aging Kublai Khan informed the King of Korea that it was no longer necessary to build ships, as the war on Japan was being shelved indefinitely, no relaxation in the Japanese posture took place. Doing so was just too much of a risk. It was not until Kublai died in 1294 that the war footing was finally relaxed, meaning that Japan maintained itself in readiness for imminent invasion for two decades on the nose. And that kind of preparation was not cheap. The Shugo, and the Gokenin vassals who served them, had laid out a huge amount of money and resources to prepare for war. The traditional way to reward them would have been with wealth taken from defeated foes. But of course, in this case, the defeated foes had left no wealth to claim. In the aftermath of the 1274 invasion, the Hojo had rewarded some among the victorious samurai from their own coffers, but now demand was far greater. Yet the Bakufu had spent much of its own money on preparations for the invasion and had little to spare. But there were Shugo and Gokenin who had nearly bankrupted themselves preparing for the war. How could those people be denied compensation? It would look terrible. Even more pressing, in a way, were families of warriors who had no particular loyalty to the Hojo, clans that had actually fought against the Hojo, but still rallied to the defense of Kyushu out of a sense of duty. And that was one hell of a PR opportunity. Rewarding those clans for, for lack of a better word, patriotic service, allowed the Hojo to position themselves as unifiers, bringing the country together in the face of the Mongol threat. But to do that, you have to actually have the money to, you know, give rewards. It also wasn't just samurai who were asking. Remember, the religious establishment, especially Buddhists, claimed credit for the maybe typhoon, maybe storm, 
that had ended the 1274 invasion. When another storm ended the 1281 invasion, well, that was clear proof that the gods and Buddhas had heard their prayers. So the priests would like their reward for saving the country twice now, thank you very much. And you might think, who cares what a bunch of priests want? What are they going to do, pray at you? But remember, the Buddhist establishment in particular enjoyed substantial moral authority under the Hojo, thanks in part to the fact that the Hojo themselves were patrons of Buddhism. And in addition, we're not talking about isolated priests here. Temples and shrines usually had massive land grants designed to support them that would give them tremendous economic influence. In other words, pissed-off clergy could direct substantial economic and moral leverage against the state. In the end, the Hojo could not afford to pay the demands on their treasury, and that proved utterly fatal to any sense of confidence in the regime. All the goodwill that Hojo Tokimune had built up by being the savior of Japan against the Mongols, his successors squandered by being unable to pay his IOUs. This is where we return to one of the most important aspects of the samurai class. There's this idea that samurai were loyal to a fault and absolutely disciplined, and this is, in fact, completely untrue. Samurai loyalty was premised on reciprocity, as the whole concept of loyalty really always has been. Families of warriors were loyal to the Hojo because the Hojo were loyal to them. Families like the So family of Tsushima or the Shoni who had ruled Kyushu as the Chinsei Bugyo in the name of the Hojo and whose leader, Shoni Tsukiyoshi, had died defending Kyushu for the Hojo, those families had been elevated by the Hojo and were loyal because of that. The failure to continue to reward their loyalty undercut the entire premise of that loyalty in turn. Put another way, Hojo power was premised on their ability to keep being generous with their subordinates, particularly in exchange for service. That was true, in fact, of every stage of samurai government, from the Hojo all the way down to the last Tokugawa shoguns. When those at the top lost the ability to be generous, they lost the loyalty of those beneath them. To make matters worse, even families that had been allied to the Hojo for nigh on a century, or flat-out relatives of the Hojo, began to turn on the dynasty as a result of this failure to pay up. Tokimune's successors responded with a series of bloody purges of political foes, which didn't really do much to help their image. Only 49 years after Hojo Tokimune died, his successors were crushed when rebels against the Kamakura government stormed the city. That short time frame is no coincidence. The collapse of the Hojo was directly related, at least in part, to their failure to repay debts from their successful defense of the homeland. So what about the long term? Well, I think it is interesting that of all the Hojo family members, only Tokimune has anything approaching a good reputation. The founders of the family's power, Hojo Masako and her father Tokimasa, are traditionally viewed respectively as a power-hungry and manipulative harpy and a cunning and feckless traitor. The other Hojo Shikens vary in their traditional historical image from being flat-out incompetent to being arrogant and cruel. The last Hojo ruler who died in 1333 in his capital was rather uncharitably labeled by one of the first Western historians of Japan, George Sansom, as being completely insane. Tokimune, however, was and is popular. 
He remains a figure of patriotic popularity and is generally regarded as a genius and a brilliant politician. That's despite, in my assessment, actually doing very little to help defeat the invasions. Remember, he did not command on the scene. He didn't direct the location of the defenses. Pretty much his biggest decisions were to actually start the wars in the first place by kicking out the early envoys and executing the later ones, and to reward the victors of 1274 out of his own money, which was good PR, but set a precedent that his successors could not keep. Shoni Tsukiyoshi, in my opinion, deserves far more credit for being the man on the scene actually directing the defense of Kyushu, but that's just me. Tokimune, in a sense, really did benefit from dying as young as he did. After all, dead people can't make mistakes or mishandle problems. They are, after all, dead. The fact that Tokimune had passed meant that he didn't have to deal with the blowback from all of his own policies for fighting the war. He was not the one stuck with the impossible-to-pay bill at the end of the whole damn thing, and as a result, he came out looking pretty good compared to the rest of the Hojo. One can only imagine what his legacy would look like if instead he'd lived to a ripe old age and died in the 1320s or 1330s if he'd had to confront the growing dissatisfaction with his policies. I can only guess he'd be a lot less popular. Yet popular he is. Recently, NHK even devoted one of its yearly taiga dramas, these year-long historical miniseries, to the rise of Hojo Tokimune, back in 2001, I think it was. They brought on an extremely popular, classically trained Kyogen actor to play him. I haven't seen the series, but by all accounts, I hear it's quite good. What's honestly remarkable to me about Tokimune's unique historical reputation is that it has endured through some shifting political winds. We haven't really talked much about this, but remember that Hojo supremacy was built on the destruction of the power of the emperor. Before the Mongols came, the biggest war the Hojo had fought was the Jokyu conflict of the 1220s, which they fought against the imperial family. The emperors were trying to reassert their authority over the government. Crushing the power of the emperors militarily normally would not play super well long-term, particularly after the collapse of samurai government in the 19th century. Others who fought against the power of the emperors, like the eventual supplanter of the Hojo, Ashikaga Takauji, were vilified. But Hojo Tokimune, despite the fact that he presided over a system that stripped power from the emperors, and despite the fact that he started a war with the Mongols against the advice of the imperial court, remained a patriotic hero. In fact, Tokimune became an icon of patriotic defense of the nation under the imperial government, and the war against the Mongols became a sort of historical statement of intent, one moment among many where the Japanese stood up and marked themselves as different from people on the continent. The victory over the Mongols was used in imperial propaganda, as an example of and justification for Japanese uniqueness. It proved both the nation's warrior skills and its unique national destiny. Today that remembrance is more muted, probably because of its overtly militaristic tone. The Mongol invasions remain a popular bit of history to talk about. After all, a gigantic invasion by a seemingly unstoppable foe captures the imagination. But victory is not celebrated quite the way it used to be, or at least not with the same feverish tone. The victory itself is tainted by its association with that term kamikaze, the divine typhoons that are now credited with saving Japan 
but which of course are also associated with a far more complex recent past, and incidentally a past that we need to talk about at some point. So that brings us back to the central question of why any of this matters. Sure, it's a good story, but why spend so much time telling it? Well, in the end, because it's a great example of something I love to talk about, transnational history. The invasions are a Japanese story, but they're also a Mongolian one, and a Chinese one, and a Korean one, and even kind of a Vietnamese, Burmese, or even Persian one. It lets us consider how connected the world of the past was, that a war on one side of a massive empire could have ramifications on the other end. For the Japanese specifically, victory over the Mongols was a moment of historic pride and a contributor to a unique sense of national identity and destiny, but it was also a catalyst that helped lead towards a less powerful central government as the authority of the Hojo crumbled, leading to a weak and ineffectual government under the Ashikaga, and eventually a century and a half of war. It is, in other words, a story of great importance to Japan, but also a story of far greater importance than its specific temporal and geographic scope would imply, which makes it a story that is well worth telling. But now we are done telling it, because that's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. For more on this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.isaacmeyer.net. That's I-S-A-A-C-M-E-Y-E-R dot net, or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time when we tackle an important anniversary, Japan's role in the Russian Revolution.